what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Foot Candle Films on TheMesh.tv. My name is Alan. Across from me is Chris, Hello. as always. Yes. Chris, how are you doing? You know, I would like to take this time to let the audience know how much we care about you. Why am I saying this? Ooh. Here we sit recording... Wimbledon is going on. Alan yes. is taking time out of his schedule <laughs> to record this instead of watch the stuff going on. I have not had lunch. And oh, no. I'm starving. The sacrifices we're both making. We are. We do it all for the listeners. So I just, just want you guys to be aware of that. I'm not trying to guilt trip you or anything. We just say, I haven't had lunch. I'm starving. Alan is not watching Wimbledon. So... Just be well, Alan may be able to see what's going on in Wimbledon. <laughs> so if I act a little distracted at any point during the, during the recording, you'll know what's going on. I will not gross you guys out by trying to eat during this recording. Though. I will yeah. wait until he'll wait till the right afterwards. So, yeah. well, it's all about sacrifices and you're right. It's all about our listeners and boy, for our listeners, do we have a show today? We actually have a couple of key reviews of films that we'll be discussing today. First off is going to be the latest Marvel Studios film, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And then we'll be following that up with a discussion about a documentary titled RBG, who is about, as you can probably guess, if you are able to uh, match the acronym and initials up with the character, it is a uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So after we have those two reviews, we'll move on to some movie news, some news that we think is interesting to discuss about upcoming projects or projects that may be going through a little bit of a change uh, that we're interested in following. And then we'll fi finish up the show with a recommendation from each of us of a film or program we think you ought to check out if you have time or are looking for something to watch or catch up on maybe this upcoming weekend. So Chris, got a full show. We got a lot to do. So let's go ahead and jump right into our first review, if that's okay with you. And it's going to be of the latest film from Marvel Studios starring uh, Mr. Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly. It is titled Ant-Man and the Wasp. I do some dumb things. And the people I love the most, they pay the price. Thanks to you, we had to run. We're still running. Let's go. You just need someone watching your back, like a partner. Hold on. You gave her wings and blasters. So I take it you didn't have that tech available for me. No, I did. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a sequel to the film Ant-Man, which starred uh, Paul Rudd and was directed by Peyton Reed uh, about maybe two to three years ago, I'd say. I think that's right. Um, I think it was maybe 2015, if I had to guess. So now we have the sequel, which is both a sequel of the character Ant-Man, but now it includes a new character that we were introduced to in the first movie. Uh, it is um, Hope Van Dyne, who is now playing the Wasp. So the two of them are a combo in this. Must be noted, this is the first Marvel Studios film to have a lead female character in the title of the film. So I thought that was kind of interesting. 
They haven't gotten to the point of having one as a solo female. That will be happening with Captain Marvel that comes out next year. But I thought it was at least some progression to see that we have a female character in a lead role in a film now. So with this film, we'll give a short plot synopsis of it. Um, it is a very much a standard Marvel movie, but we're going to see how we feel about it here in a moment. Uh, the plot is as Scott Lang, who is Ant-Man, balances being both a superhero and a father, Hope Van Dyne and her father, Dr. Hank Pym, uh, present an urgent new mission that finds the Ant-Man fighting alongside the Wasp to uncover secrets from their past. Basically, what's happening is Scott uh, Scott Lang, who's played by Paul Rudd, is Ant-Man, and he had just come off of his adventure with the rest of the Marvel heroes in the Captain America Civil War movie. But because of those actions, he is now on house arrest because he technically broke the law in helping with the other side of the Civil War team. But in doing so, it forced Hank Pym and uh, uh, Hope to go into hiding because basically they were kind of accomplices to him and his suit and the technology that he was using. So that's where the movie starts us off. He's in house arrest and the two of them are kind of in hiding and trying to work on a project which involves going into the quantum realm. <laughs> Chris is already shaking his head. Uh, going into the quantum realm to rescue her father, Hope's, or, I'm sorry, Hope's mother, who is Janet uh, Van, uh, Van Dyne, uh, who in Marvel Comics history was the original Wasp from the Avengers. So with all that being said, Chris, um, I seem to remember you thought the original Ant-Man was okay. Um, yeah. Don't think you were overly positive on it, but you thought it was fine. Uh, I had a good time with it. I thought it was a fun movie. Um, it didn't do a whole lot to break the formula of the the superhero movies, but at least it had a really good sense of humor. I really like Paul Rudd as an actor. I generally find myself enjoying anything he's in. Right. Um, and Peyton Reed, uh, who is a director, I think you actually have a little bit of a family connection with. Is that right? Yeah. His mom taught me middle school English. There we go. All right. So, <laughs> so nice he's originally from North Carolina. So. That's right. So, and, and they brought him back as the director again for this film too. So Chris, I got to ask you, I mean, does, did this film do anything for you to kind of break some of the Marvel monotony that I think you've gotten a little tired of, or maybe a little frustrated with over the last couple of years, or did you find enough in here to really keep it interesting and entertaining either on its own or as an extension of the Marvel universe? Well, I think, you know, I, I did like Ant-Man. I think actually I thought it was maybe a little above just okay. Like I think maybe you and I are on the same page as far yeah. as the like for the original Ant-Man. So I think what I liked about it is it did, did seem a little different because it was kind of kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy. It had a lot of humor in it. it had, um, and it had a heist element to it. Right. It was a little more, you know, yeah, a little different. So it was a little different in that. Um, with this film, uh, the humor was still there, but maybe – I think it got bogged down in the plot. I just had trouble. And it, whether I, you know, it's not a directing thing, I don't think. I think it's a writing thing. Just trouble balancing the action and the comedy and the high minded geek science. Whenever they went into the quantum realm, realm <laughs> I went to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, it's just, of course, you know, we can't do this you know, in real life practically. So we do it all with CGI. And it's just, I mean, it, you know, by this point, kind of like the Jurassic World syndrome, you know they're capable of doing whatever and making it look, you know, cool, but just boring. And when there were stretches of quantum realm talk and quantum realm them being there, and it just it bored me. I think if that kind of thread could have been left out, 
and I was more interested in the villain of the ghost mm-hmm. that played, and I felt like the ghost kind of got short shrift. Um, she did, and, and we, we we will say ghost was played by um, I have uh, Hannah John Kamen plays Ava, who kind of nickname was the ghost, and because uh, we find out early on, she's someone who has some connection to this whole quantum realm that they're trying to visit and has a desperate need to try to figure out how to get there as well. So, uh, but she also becomes an adversary trying to block Ant-Man and the Wasp from accomplishing their needs and missions uh, for her own benefit too. So uh, she was good. I thought she was an interesting villain, not used as as much, but I thought it was an interesting premise for a villain. And uh, I I liked the way she played it as well. Yeah, it's just something about, I guess, I was wanting more humor, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I thought it was just a little, a little, a little distracting because the whole quantum realm, quantum verse, just. Just, you feel like it just got maybe over convoluted on things and just uh, right. spend a little more time on the elements that maybe weren't as interesting right. to you. I did, I did admire you in the intro. You talked about how, where this film picks up. Yeah. And I admired how they picked up from kind of into Civil War and, you know, and then the way the film ends, you kind of find its connection to Avengers Infinity War. So yes. it kind of is shoehorned into the time period after Civil War, before Avengers Civil or before Infinity War. So before the two wars, <laughs> in between the two wars, right. Civil War, it, Infinity War. So, yeah. Well, I like I like the fact that it does play in that larger universe. It does contribute to the larger story. But yet, on its own, once you get past the first few minutes, and if you ignore the stuff during the credits, it really is pretty much a standalone movie. I mean, right. it does in, in, act independently of the rest of the Marvel Universe. I uh, I maybe like this a little bit more than you, but I, I, I still didn't enjoy as much as the first Ant-Man. And okay. I think it's just because maybe, like you said, uh, to me, the first Ant-Man movie was a very straightforward, simple story mm-hmm. that was well done and entertaining and funny. This movie, I thought, was also funny. I thought some of the action scenes were very creative and inventive. But I'd agree with you that the plot was probably just more overly convoluted. One perfect example for me, and I'm not giving away plot details, but I'm just saying there is a moment in the plot about two-thirds of the way through the movie where everybody is trying to go after this one thing. And I already had it in my mind that they were going after a whole different thing. (laughs) So when they got the one thing, I'm like, oh, was that what they were going after? And they're like, okay, now that we've got this thing, now that gives us what we need to go after this other thing. I'm like, oh. That just seemed like overly complicated for the sake of being complicated. That's probably the things that didn't work for me as much in the movies. I didn't think the writing was as tight as we saw in the first movie. Although I enjoyed the humor and some of the, uh, the, the action set pieces that they did put into this film, I thought were pretty interesting. So sure. I still had a good time with it, but I do feel like that the overly overdone plot was probably more to its detriment and took away from some of the fun and simplicity I think I enjoy with the first film. Yeah, you know, talking whether I try to use the the image of juggling or plot threads, you know, pick mm-hmm. your pick your metaphor or whatever there. But I think, you know, you had the villain of Ghost, you had Quantum Realm and Mom, then you had uh Walter Goggins, who I like a lot as an actor, uh playing Sonny Birch, which is kind of like a criminal underworld guy and i just i thought he was, he was there for a little bit of comedic relief i guess um but i liked yeah. him but then you had that kind of storyline about his kind of supplying money to the pims you know so you had that and then you had the overarching thread of you know 
Ant-Man and his family and him being on house arrest. So you had all these, you know, and it just, it got too jumbled. And I, I think in the first movie, like you're saying, it worked better for me because it was more straightforward and had more humor. And this one, I think there was humor, but it got dropped way down because they were so busy trying to keep up with all the plot elements. I and it got that. a little muddy yeah. and disjointed, just didn't overall work for me. I would like to say, uh, you know, been, you know, ripping on it here a little bit. And it does seem like you liked it a little more than me. A little bit, yeah. Um, the highlight of the film for me was it was a humor element. Mm -hmm. And it was when Michael Pena, who is also <laughs> in this film, he's kind of a criminal that has come to the right side just with Ant-Man. It was like his buddy, and like they have yeah. a company now. Anyways, he's having a face-off with uh, Sonny Birch, Walton Goggins, and he basically is like telling a sequence of events as induced by truth serum. Yeah. And you see other characters, like he's basically narrating this whole sequence, but you see a montage of other characters talking, but you hear his voice. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely the highlight standout funny. of the film. Like I just... I could watch that again because yes. <laughs> it, it's also it's done for laughs, but it's also kind of making fun of the fact that it's doing it for like it. It's very self-aware because just of how they have the characters expressions where they're mouthing these words of him. It's just really well done. No, I agree. I agree. So, I, I think in general, uh, Michael Pena is Louise. It's very funny again in this film. I think he was a, a funny spot in the first film as well. So they carried some of those elements. Paul Rudd, I think. Is his typical, very uh, charming and, and funny self. He, he has probably, it's interesting, he actually has a, he has a little less to do, which makes sense. He's sharing the spotlight with some other characters in the right. film. Um, I do feel like he got kind of forgotten uh, at some I, points. I would um, agree. I would agree. And then I also feel like uh, Evangeline Lilly, who I think was very good in this film as you know, Hope Van Dyne, the, the Wasp. But trying to balance both of those two as lead characters, and you have so many other supporting characters in the plot, it, 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 everything gets watered down a little bit more. Oh, forgot to mention, yeah, watered down. Too many actors, too many stars, too much stuff going on. Lawrence Fishburne is in this. Yeah, which, again, another very small part. Right. But, you know, it does but have an impact. It's an important, important part. But uh, it, it was one of those things when we got to the scene of introducing him, I'm like, oh, he's in this movie, too. It's almost like <laughs> more and more people just kind of keep popping Crowding up and in. more characters. Yeah. yeah. I do agree. It was like I think it lost sight of some of the simplicity that I think made the first one work. I still think this is a very enjoyable film. But I do feel like that it's it's one of the few Marvel movies where I really just kind of turned off my brain to the plot because the plot mm -hmm. became started to get a little too convoluted. Yes. Uh, and that's not something I feel like has been a typical trait of the Marvel movies. I think they've done a pretty good job of keeping the plot kind of focused and kind of laser lasered on what they want to do. This movie, I just felt like too many elements started to cram in. Yeah. Um, so I, I still had a good time with it. Um, a couple other things I'll say as standouts. The film uh, utilizes the technology that we've seen in some other movies to de-age a couple of actors. And I'm I, still pretty amazed by that. You know what? Okay. Rogue One did yeah. not work for me. Well, Rogue One was a digital recreation. Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't de-aging them. I guess they yeah. used that same thing with Iron Man. In, they did. Tony it, Stark in, was, was in the uh, Civil War. Civil War, right. Yeah, shows at the beginning of him and it his It was a parents. young Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, that, that was good. But yeah, these instances work even better to de-age. Oh, yeah. I've totally forgotten that aspect. So that's, that's an example where I can champion CGI or the use of that stuff. 
I feel like it's being done well and yeah. it's not distracting or not irritating. Like I don't want it to be overused, but I thought it was used perfectly. Well, I think the whole difference there is, is there the actual actor was acting. Yeah. Michael Douglas was in that scene acting. That was right. him that we were watching acting. It's just to make him look like he would have looked back in, I guess, the seventies or early eighties, as opposed to how he looks now. So I think that's the difference where with rogue one, when they were bringing back, um, the one admiral, I don't remember his name, he had passed away. Peter right. Cushing was gone. So Peter that Cushing? was truly a full CGI recreation of him. Right. And that's where it's still not quite there yet. Right. But the digital de-aging or changing the age, I, I assume they can do it with making somebody look older now too. Right. Does open up a lot of interesting possibilities of what actors are going to be able to do with without any age restrictions. True. You know, you think about it. I mean, you could have... Dame Judi uh, Dench could be a swimsuit model. Absolutely. <laughs> it could happen. I mean, the idea that somebody in, in a different stage in their life as an actor or actress could say, well, I could still play young. Sure. Uh, without any any hesitation because of the digital enhancements that can be there. So I think it was cool to see. I, I'm, I was watching it carefully to see, can I tell that this is not real or this is somehow artificial. And I, I couldn't, hmm. it seemed very, very natural to me. So I, I will give props for that. Um, I thought some of the visual effects, the use of the shrinking and growing, of course, all looked really good. I thought they were good. Well, well done visual effects. So yeah, overall Randall park, I will say it played a, uh, uh, detective, I guess, Jimmy Wu, who was kind of on the case of Paul Rudd. Oh, man. You that, like didn't that? Work. that didn't no, work No, it didn't for work me. for you? I thought no. it was funny. So. Is, that, is that a carryover for the first film? No, I don't no, think so. I, I don't think he was. I don't remember him being in the other ones. Okay. okay. I thought, yeah, because I was thinking maybe there's a relationship there or some more stuff that I don't remember from the first film. Maybe that's why I'm not finding him. As funny. But yeah, it no, just didn't, it it didn't, didn't work, work for him. I liked it. I thought it was good. I thought it was, uh, you know. It was another source of humor that, granted, I don't know if the humor always worked as well as I thought it did in the first Ant-Man movie, but they definitely were trying to get humor from other places than just relying on Paul Rudd to be the funny guy. Right. So and I thought that worked okay for me as well. So overall, I, I give it I give it a recommendation. It's not a whole it's not a hearty one, but I will say that if you're a fan of the Marvel movies and you like the first Ant-Man, I think you'll enjoy this one. I think it's a fun movie. Uh, I do like the fact that it's not so tied in with the rest of the Marvel movies that right. you are going to be lost if you didn't see the other ones. The first five minutes might kind of take a little bit to catch up to speed, but once you're in the plot line, you're you're kind of good to go. Um, and, uh, you know, it did have some, some credit sequences that did tie into some other storylines that if you're a big Marvel fan, you need to kind of stay for those. But otherwise, uh, they're not really critical to the actual enjoyment of this film on its own uh, by themselves. So anything else, Chris, with this yeah. film you think that's worth talking about? It's pretty cut and dry. Yeah. You know, uh, not a whole lot more to talk about other than just saying I think it was good. Chris seemed a little more down on it than I was, but... You know, we're, we're both saying it's a it's a, at least an acceptable film. If not in my <laughs> mind, I say it's maybe a little better, I mean, better than that. I level. did like it better than Infinity War, but that's not saying much. <laughs> so. Yeah, we're not going to rehash your opinions on no. Infinity War during this episode. So, uh, yeah, we're going to pass on that. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. So, Chris, that is Ant-Man and the Wasp, directed by Peyton Reed. Uh, is still playing, doing pretty well box office. So you should have a chance to still see it here in the near future. Just for those of you keeping track on the Marvel movies uh, plot line or timeline here, we started the year with Black Panther. 
We had Avengers Infinity War. We have this movie now, Ant-Man and the Wasp. But we're done for now, I think we're done for 2018. Yeah. Okay. But then be prepared next year. We do have Captain Marvel and then the next Avengers, um, whatever they're calling that one. Infinity War Part 2. Possibly so. (laughs) They haven't officially announced the title of that film. So that is 2019, though. That is, yes. Absolutely. That's the two I think that are slated for next year, if I remember correctly. So, okay, well, let's move on to a very different type of film. We're going from narrative special effects action movie to a documentary about a very famous uh, person in our current uh, American history. Let's talk about the documentary RBG. I became a lawyer when women were not wanted by the legal profession. Thousands of state and federal laws discriminated on the basis of gender. She was following in the footsteps of the battle for racial equality. She wanted equal protection for women. Men and women are persons of equal dignity and they should count equally before the law. She captured for the male members of the court what it was like to be a second-class citizen. The point is that the discriminatory line almost inevitably hurts women. I did see myself as kind of a kindergarten teacher in those days because the judges didn't think sex discrimination existed. We've talked a lot about biopics before on the show, and we've also reviewed documentaries. This is kind of a mashup in that it's a documentary, but it's also, it is a biography, basically, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So... What makes for a good biopic? We've talked about before, often it is not when they try to do this span of somebody's entire career. With RBG, they kind of do do her span of the career, starting from before she even had a law degree and coming up to the present, because she's still a hardworking uh, Supreme Court justice, kind of talking to her now and having her talk about what's going on now. Alan, how did this work for you in the mm-hmm. context of the film was it too much to bite off or did it work? Um, I think the film worked. Um, I will say this. It was, in my mind, a fairly traditional standard biography documentary. Um, I think there were enough interesting flourishes and enough interesting things structurally to keep it moving and to keep you engaged throughout the whole film. But at the end of the day, it still was like, like you said, from childhood to current status and everything in between, every, every bit of movement in the career, uh, uh, flexing between that and the more personal family relationships they have is a very traditional biopic, but I do think it served the purpose. And if the purpose of this is to educate the population about who she is, as opposed to, as opposed to just what role she plays in, in our government, I think people all know that, but I think getting to know who she is, I think the film does a, a good job of helping us understand that. I came out of the film more understanding and educated about her as a person, which obviously that's the point of a film like this. And I was fairly entertained by the film as much as you can be entertained by a biography documentary film. So I had a good time with it and I thought it was well done and it was a very, very high quality film. Um, it, it worked for me. Uh, yeah, it's one of those where you see it, you learn from it, you you get a good understanding. 
don't really need to see it again. You know, there's nothing really like that's going to like cause you to come back and want to like refresh your scenes of it or to see certain parts again. There's nothing really as a standout of the film either. It was just, it was a good serviceable documentary that I thought was well done uh, for the duration of, of the film. So Chris, I'm anxious to hear your thoughts on it. What did you think? I liked it. And I think the reason why I liked it is because I knew who, or I thought I knew, <laughs> I guess, you know, the way I phrase it, one of our foot candle members, actually your father said it last night Yes. Uh, in our post screening discussion, he said, I knew what she did, but I didn't know who she was. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I went into the film. Yeah. And I didn't know, I didn't expect learning who she was, was going to be that entertaining. Mm-hmm. And it was for me. And I credit that to how the film was constructed Um, whether it be the way the directors decide to do it or whether it was just in the editing. But they wove so many different themes in the film. They didn't do this traditional, they didn't start at the beginning and then work all the way up constantly in a timeline to her current state. They basically jumped all back and forth in the timeline and that worked. Could have been confusing, but for me wasn't. And I think Mm -hmm. why was because of just the really tight editing and the direction and the writing all came together and worked really well. This is Mm -hmm. one of the best directed, edited, written documentaries that I can think of. Now Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's the, like in recent history, I'm not saying it's the best documentary I've seen in recent years because there's some that, you know, you can maybe air quotes are more important or Mm -hmm. communicating a different message, you know, and they're more packed, more of a punch. This one, you know, you learn stuff and it doesn't maybe deliver the gut punch that some other documentaries do. But as far as being very well constructed, I have to give it to it. It is. And it was to be a documentary that's, you know, an hour and a half about law and courtroom drama stuff. Usually that kind of stuff bores me. Like, um, that just doesn't seem like it would be that interesting. Yeah. But, um, in this case it was great. I, 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 I can say I enjoyed it as well. Uh, I will say, and I think we wrestle with this anytime we see a documentary that has to do with political figures or people involved in the government, you know, as partisan as, as so much of the country is and as so much of the partisan our politics are. I feel like the film did play it a little safe uh, more than I would have liked to have had. But I also understand why they did. I think this is a this is an education piece. This is a we want you to understand the person as opposed to trying to push agendas and trying to push right. uh, some belief systems around or ideologies. So I, I respect it for that. Um, I, I do think the film was very, very safe. There was one element where uh, Justice Ginsburg kind of made a mistake. And he has something recently in her comments during the 2016 presidential election and the film did address that. It does talk about that. And it does give us some kind of resolution to how Justice Ginsburg's reacting to it, how she feels about it now. Other than that, you know, uh, it was very, very, uh, a very comfortable, safe documentary. It was, you know, here's everything that's gone right. Here's everything she's worked hard for. Here's everything she's done. And I applaud it for that. And again, we learned a lot from it. Could, could it have been if she were no longer around? Could it have been if it was somebody who was maybe not as connected with her making a documentary about her? Could we be learning a little bit more about some of the challenges she's faced or maybe some of the failures she's experienced? Um, possibly. But I think overall for, for the film, for what it was meaning to do, 
I thought it was really good. And I completely echo you on the production side. It was an extremely well-made documentary. Sure. Uh, very, very nicely paced, very nicely edited. I love the use of the confirmation hearing in 1993 as kind of the, the framework for a lot of the film. And a lot of times we just let, got to hear her during that actual confirmation. And that became some of the narration for a lot of the film we're watching. It was a really nice way of weaving in some real footage as opposed to just having to hear talking heads, uh, current day talking heads over and over again throughout the film. So I liked it. I loved it from a production standpoint. Uh, topic wise, I think it was really interesting. I just wonder what could have happened with a little bit more of a, a daring documentary about her. So. Well, you know, not knowing the behind the scenes about how this got made and the relationship of the directors to the subject matter, we do learn that Ginsburg is very private. She doesn't talk a lot. She or doesn't seem to talk about it. She's just a very, pro, you know, thinking person, kind of, you know, ruminates on things. Whereas something we also learn about, which going into this, I had no idea who her husband was. We learn a lot about her husband. Yeah. And he was in many ways kind of a mouthpiece for her. He was really supportive of her and her career. And, you know, was in many ways polar opposite from her. He had a really good sense of humor, was very bubbly and gregarious. She's the complete opposite. So I I kind of get a sense that, and I feel like, like you were saying, it was interesting having the framing device of the confirmation hearing. And we have a lot of archival footage in this because they actually had access to it. And I think it was really well used. But the benefit of this documentary is you have her current day also mm. being asked about things. I kind of get the idea, I don't know, but that she, you know, was willing to do this. But I think if, if things were in a certain way, I don't think, I think she would back off very easily and say, I'm not interested in that, you know, but she opened up and let them do this. And I think it's a better film for it. Whereas if they wouldn't have sought her approval, we wouldn't have heard from her at all. And it would have mm -hmm. been archival footage and talking heads and wouldn't have been that as impactful, but because they were able to have her participation, it made for a more important piece. But like you're saying, does that maybe water down the message because they could have gotten at certain things? For instance, they reference, they do put the thing in there about the comments she made during mm -hmm. the election, but there was also, uh, she, before she was on the Supreme Court, she took court cases to the Supreme Court as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned that four out of the five times she took cases, and they mentioned what some of those cases were, four out of the five, she won. Yep. Well, then that leaves the hanging question. Well, there's a fifth. What was that case? Yep. What was involved in losing it? And that would have framed. And how did she react to losing yeah. that case? See that, that that would have been really interesting yeah, for and, me. But, as well. you know, maybe it's the type of thing where they had to weigh. It's like, well, if we ask certain hard questions, she's going to back away and not do this at all. Yeah. And so they said, was there a value of having her voice in there? I don't know. I will say, too, that I admired, which something I think they could have done easily, was her husband, spoiler, he has passed away. Um, they show the relationship, how important he is to her, but they do, no, they do not have her comment on screen, on camera, in the current course of this documentary about what his death meant to her, what happened. Like, you know, they kind of, people around her kind of talk about it and they mm, move on. Yeah. And I think it would have been very easy to kind of try to put her in the spotlight and say, okay, tell us about, you know, and they, 
And it would have been, I imagine, pretty emotional for her, but they didn't, they didn't bother doing that. Yeah. And I actually think that's a strength because other times I think different choices could have been made and it would have seemed too pulling strings to try to get certain emotions out. Possibly. Um, so that, I think that choice of not trying to grill her about what his loss meant, you know, cause I, I don't know. I think I actually appreciated that. So, right, right. Well, there are a lot of talking heads in the, in the documentary, a lot of people interviewed. Uh, and I will say it was nice to see that there were some, some clips from people that are on the other side of the political spectrum from her so that you got a little bit of perspective. But again, I think it was also very safe. The only time you really heard disparaging things about her or thing, people that were upset with her was that one moment with the presidential election. You basically have a, 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 some of the people that were very big supporters of Anton Scalia or, 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 or the Republican Party or the Republican candidate disappointed in her for the uh, comments she made about uh, soon to be President Trump at that time. That's the only time we really got people saying, OK, well, here's a time that I really felt like this didn't work or she really maybe didn't do uh, the justice she should have done to something. I would have liked to have seen a little more balance on some of that. If I really wanted to get a documentary that really helped me understand her role in American history, mm -hmm. both good and bad as it is, this film was meant to educate us and also help us see her as a very um, fascinating person that has done a lot for our, the history of our country, especially when it comes to gender equality. Sure. So, Again, for what it was designed to do, I thought it was very, very good. Sure. Um, would I like to have seen more? Would I have liked to have seen a little more on opposite sides of the coin? Yes. I think that would make an interesting documentary. Where this one was, I didn't find this as interesting as I just found it as good and well done and well produced. So I enjoyed it from that aspect of it. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned Anton Scalia and their relationship um, – they didn't agree. They were kind of polar opposites on things, but they had a good working relationship yeah. and they were friends outside of the Supreme Court. And I thought that was interesting. And he has passed away, which I think that would have been a fascinating documentary is to have the two of them sit down <laughs> and kind of not debate, but kind of have a moderator say, what's your take on this? What's your yeah. take on this? And have the back and forth there because both clearly highly intelligent people and to have them discuss and just not argue, but discuss. Yes, and exactly. I think that's something that's missing from a lot of politics and a lot of discussions today is civility and being able to disagree, but do so in intelligent, cogent manners. And she you know, makes a point early on that something her mother taught her was don't, you know, be a lady, I think was one mm -hmm. thing. And then, you know, be, be independent. independent. Mm -hmm. But then another thread was, when you disagree with someone, don't yell, you know, because just, you know, because that drives people away. And what you yeah. want to do is bring them because you you will cease to have a discussion. You want to bring point. people into your camp. You want right. to bring people together is what the goal is. So, no, I agree with you on the idea of a, of a Ginsburg uh, um, um, Scalia documentary would have been fascinating. Yeah. Because even the one like there's maybe a 10 minute section of the film that really hones in on that relationship. And there's a dialogue that each of them have in an interview about their perception of the Constitution and yes. how it was written. And it was great. I yeah. mean, hearing both of them give their opinions, I totally saw <laughs> I saw their opinions. Right. I understood it. I'm like, yes. oh, I get it. This is how he's viewing the Constitution. And now I hear how she's viewing it. Do I have a preference myself of which way I tend to view it? Yes, I do. 
but I get it like the other side. I mean, I hear them talking in a very civil tone, civil discourse. It makes a really big difference, a whole lot better than, you know, just hearing people bicker on, on talk show, you know, uh, uh, um, 24 hour t- uh, news TV channels. Sure. You know, I feel like I learned more about how different ideologies could work and could try to work together, right. uh, which I agree is something we have definitely lost sight of, I think in our political discourse lately. So, um, no, I, I enjoyed the film. I really did. And again, for what it was meant to do and what it was designed to do, I think it was a very good documentary for that purpose. Um, it actually made me think as crazy as this would be, how interesting it would be to see a film like this about each of the, the, the Supreme court justices, Sure. because even though Ginsburg has this more iconic status in the last few years, she's lampooned on Saturday night live. She's got <laughs> memes about her online. That just even highlights to me more and more how I know really next to nothing about the other eight you hear justices. The names and that's about it. Yeah. I mean, right? Ginsburg's probably the most iconic right now just because of the last few years of the, the notoriety, the uh, notorious yeah. RBG she's been called. Right. But the other eight justices, I'm like, I really would like to learn more about them. If we could have a documentary as interesting as this one about Ginsburg, about each of the others. I think we'd really learn a lot about the makeup of this court that really has such a huge impact on our, our society. So. Well, and also watching this now with the impending nomination of because yeah. Kennedy is retiring. So, yeah, this is kind of an interesting documentary to watch, too, because you just learned about, like you were talking about, the confirmation process and all that stuff. So, yeah, just a very timely, just happens to be a very timely documentary to watch yeah. from that perspective. Absolutely. So that's RBG. That is a documentary that's uh, playing. It was playing select cities for a good while. I don't know if it ever really goes to a wide release. Your best bet, probably, if you don't live in a bigger city, is probably uh, waiting to see it online in a couple months. Um, but uh, good documentary. Very good. Especially if you have any passing interest in her as, a, as an individual or in our uh, United States judicial system. I think it's a great documentary for those purposes. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. We've done our two reviews. When we come back from the break, we are going to move into some movie news, followed by our recommendations for the episode. So you're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. When you need a dose of entertainment chatter or just a good laugh, be sure to check out Chick Chat on The Mesh. It's girls talking about stuff, well, girls want to talk about. Celebrities, gossip, fads, boys, it's kind of the guilty pleasure of the Mesh Network. Here's a little taste of what you can expect. But you know what I always thought was really exciting? Is at the beginning of a new season, when the montage would change and the people were like older or they had something new. Like when you got new Becky on Roseanne. Yes. (laughs) That's... Perfect example. You need to know. You can't just start shows and then new people are on there and you're thinking, what? What? I needed the montage. What about on 90210? Okay, that 90210, it changed every season. It did. And then they had the beach summer one where like... Where they worked at the country club? Yes. Yes. You know, and the the opening credits had them like wearing bikinis and stuff. And Mm -hmm. then another one would be like when they're just in that white room and on chairs that swivel around. Right. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... It's all it's even all. Baywatch when they change lifeguards. Absolutely. They had new people running down the beach in red bikinis, but you knew they're a new lifeguard. <laughs> I need to get invested in that. So come have a listen to Chick Chat on the mesh.tv. You know you want to. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on the mesh.tv. My name is Alan. 
with me as always is Chris. And we just finished our two reviews for the episode, Ant-Man and the Wasp and the documentary RBG just recently. We're giving some form of recommendation to both. Uh, I think we were both definitely more positive on RBG as a film. And then I was a little more positive on Ant-Man and the Wasp than Chris was. But in general, both films are ones we can give some level of recommendation to, to different degrees. But now let's move on to some movie news. Uh, before we get into some news, just a couple really quick non-film related announcements. Uh, just reminding you, you're listening to this show on TheMesh.TV, which is a podcast network. A podcast, you say. I've heard of that word before. What does that mean? Well, that means it is an audio program or it could be a video program. The difference being is that instead of you going out and finding it and waiting to see when they put out a new episode and you have to go find the new episode and watch it uh, on their website or somewhere else, a podcast is something you subscribe to, much like a DVR on a television uh, network where you record shows in advance. So every time the show comes up with a new episode, you've got it waiting for you to watch. Podcast works the same way. So whether you choose to subscribe to this show or you want to subscribe to one of the other shows on the Mesh Network or any other podcast for that matter, you have a piece of software that will that can do this. If you're on an iPhone, for example, there's a podcast app. If you're on Android, I know they have an app also to allow you to listen to podcasts. So it's finding their store where you can find these different shows are listed, find the one you're interested in, and then subscribe to it. And you know that every time you crank up your phone, if there's a new episode of that show, it will be sitting there waiting for you, ready to listen to. It's a really great concept. We're big fans of podcasts, obviously, so we encourage you to check it out. And the Mesh.TV is a great source for some podcast content. All free to use, all free to listen to, all free to share. Uh, we just love some feedback from you, and we'll tell you at the end of the show how you can help with any feedback and, and let us get better with what we're doing. All right, so Chris, we're going to move on to a couple movie news items. Uh, I've got some projects that are either in development, uh, different stages of the development, and the third one has to do with one that is very close to actually being released, but I've got some questions I want to ask you about it. Okay. okay. So the first one, going back into the comic book realm since we started the show with Ant-Man and the, and the Wasp, okay. a very interesting story announced about a film that is going into production starting shooting in September in New York. Uh, let me give you some background of the film and see if you can tell where I'm going with this. Okay. The director is going to be Todd Phillips. Todd Phillips directed The Hangovers 1, yes. 2, and 3. Okay. He also did the film Old School. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about it. Okay. Mostly comedies that he's done. So his most recent was Hangover 3? I believe so. Okay. And he also did a film called War Dogs, which I don't think anybody oh, saw. But that was yes. one with, so War uh, Dogs happened after Hangover Was 3, that the one with uh, Miles Toller and uh, Jonah Hill? I believe so. Okay. About selling arms. So that may it. have been the last one. Right. Uh, and then the script is also... Um, uh, Scott Silver, who uh, I think wrote Eight Mile, okay. the Eminem film. Hmm. So that's the team working on it. The okay. budget is $55 million, okay. but it will be part of the DC universe. Now, a budget of $55 million is peanuts for a yes, film. I mean, that is a lot of money. Don't get us wrong. Yeah. But for a film like that. Justice League had a budget of $300 million. This okay. will be a $55 million film. Okay. Okay. And then they just landed the lead actor, Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. Do you know where now, I'm going? Now I know where this is going. Yes. Hmm. They are making a Joker origin movie. All right. So 
It's a finalized deal. Warner Brothers got Joaquin Phoenix signed on to do it, starting shooting this fall. It is being described as an exploration of a man disregarded by society that is not only a gritty character study, but also a broader cautionary tale. Small budget, supposedly going for gritty origin story, more of a human exploration as opposed to a big action movie is what I'm picking up on. Right. But directed by someone with a knack for comedy and written uh, someone who did 8 Mile. Weird. Yeah. That was kind of my take on it, too. Mishmash. And to I don't make think it, Todd Phillips and Gritty don't seem no. to... Yeah. And I'll make it even stranger for you. This is supposedly an expansion of Jared Leto's Joker character from the Suicide movie. Like, okay. it's in that same universe, which that doesn't make any sense to me at all, either. So, anyway, hmm. I'm really curious now. <laughs> I have no idea what this is going to turn out to be like. Yeah, if you're going to expand on that, it seems like you would just use Jared Leto, unless he said, I don't want to do it anymore. But then, think so. why? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, yeah, that's just really bizarre. And Joaquin Phoenix, you know, I like him as an actor. Um, you would never really hear a film that I've came out this year that I've mm -hmm. seen. It, Definitely shows that he can do gritty. <laughs> okay, well, well um, and I think we've all kind of known that with him. He's, sure. he's he's the least concerning part of this project for me because I actually think I'm fascinated to see what his take on a Joker character would be. Yeah, I'm really concerned about the writing, the directing, and how this is supposed to fit into this whole other DC universe. That's where I'm surprised. Joaquin Phoenix, I think, actually is kind of an inspired choice for a, a Joker movie. For Joker, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I I would rather watch him than uh, than Jared Leto. Okay. So, you know, very interested. Yeah. In seeing what's going on with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I tell you what, do they, have a, they say starting in September. Starting so filming in September. So, I mean, if I had to guess, that would be a 2019 or 2020 release. Late 2019, probably gotcha. release of that. Hmm. Um, yeah, very interesting. I still have no idea what DC is doing with their properties. Well, they don't either. So they don't. <laughs> I think they're just throwing things against the wall and see what decides to stick. Well, I mean, Wonder Woman worked. Wonder Woman stuck. That worked. Right. And they're working on the second one. Yeah, but that's that's about all that's worked. Right. They've got Aquaman coming out later this year, which oh, is that that is this twenty that's twenty eighteen. I believe so. Yeah. Oh boy. I believe that's like, maybe at the Christmas time or so. Maybe. <laughs> or uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's next year. No, I remember they were doing one, but uh, I didn't know that if it was this year or next year. Yeah, I'm looking up right now to see. Well, I cannot remember. It seems like it would be this year because they have DC. Have they had a movie this year? Well, Justice League was at the beginning of the year. It was at the beginning. Okay. Well, then, yeah, like early in the year and didn't really go anywhere. No. Um, release date, uh, yeah, December 2018 okay. for Aquaman. So that will be at the end of this year. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah. I have no idea what they're doing, but so we'll, now we'll see. So I don't think they're holding it out for December for Oscar talk, but I could no. be wrong. <laughs> no, but I think I think studios are seeing that the, the holiday season oh. is now a good time for big tentpole movies, too. So, sure. That's yeah. Well. Okay, so that was uh, that was my story about the Joker movie. Now let's go to actually all three of my stories have to do with some form of franchise movies, which I hate doing that. I hate that we're spending so much time talking about franchise movies, but when you look at all the trades and you look at all the news, that's pretty much what all the news is about. Sure. This one, however, may be the most kind of non-traditional franchise that we're going to talk about. Were you ever a fan, or did you ever end up watching Downton Abbey? <laughs> 
No. You never watched Downton Abbey? No. Chris? Okay. Well, nope. I know, I know that's going to make this story a whole lot shorter. Um, <laughs> no, I, I know of it, and yeah. uh, I do like Maggie Smith. Um, I actually got to see her on Broadway many, many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, but no, I just, you know, period dramas aren't my thing. So. Well, I got sucked into Downton Abbey. Um, it was not a show I was looking forward to watching at all. Actually, my wife and I, when we flew to Thailand for a trip several years ago, we just uh, everybody was telling us we need to watch this show, so we ended up just downloading like six episodes of it, mm. just to watch something on the plane for this ridiculously long flight. Right, and we got hooked. We were into it, and then we became avid watchers every week when the new episode came out on uh, BBC America, which and where they broadcast here. It's now here. done, right? I mean, yes, it's done its it run. is. They okay. close it out, final episode, all done. Gotcha. Except. There's going to be a movie. No oh, good. Yep. They have come out and announced that there is a long-awaited Downton Abbey movie that's happening. Long-awaited by Alan and Suzanne. Uh, and honestly, I was, I was fine with the way it closed out. I didn't need it anymore. Okay. Now, but I do think there's obviously a lot of fans and there's oh, a sure. lot of opportunity to do something with this. Sure. So uh, the whole original main cast will be returning. Hmm. Shooting starts in September. Okay. Um, and then we've got the same talent that's involved with creating the show also involved in the film. Hmm. Uh, Gareth Neem, who is uh, executive chairman, is also going to be producer. Hmm. Uh, Julian Fellows was the one who created the show, Downton Abbey. He has written the screenplay and will produce the feature movie as well. Then Brian Percival, who uh, directed the original series pilot episode, will be directing the film. Okay. So there's no real change in talent involved in this. We're looking at a carryover from the TV show. Is it, is it a prequel show or a post? They have not said, but I can't imagine they would make it a prequel because if all the original cast is coming right. back, they're not going to they're not going to pull Marvel de-aging technology <laughs> on every single cast member, I don't think. Right. Um, I would imagine it would be a continuation of the story. And again, it ended on a nice closure note. I think it wrapped up the storylines it had to wrap up. But I, I think there's a there's opportunities to go back to these characters and see where they are five, six, seven years later or eight years later and kind of have some some new storyline to, to cover. So hmm. it could be interesting. Okay. Uh, but that was just announced this week. So I know there's been a lot of rumors and discussions about it for a long time, but they did officially announce on their Twitter account that, yes, we're coming back <laughs> and it'll be a movie. So and, uh, how many seasons were there of the show? Was it five? Oof. Either four or five seasons. One hmm. be longer than five. Because it's the type think. of thing where I wonder what would happen. Me not having seen any of the show, I've heard about it. If I just wait and watch the movie, and well, I'll then say I this. can be like, yeah. okay, I like the movie. Now I'll go back and watch the prequels, which are the first five seasons or the five seasons. Well, I will say this: even with the seasons, when I say five seasons or so, uh, these are BBC seasons, so there are shorter number of episodes. Okay. So it's not like twenty-three episodes a season. You got like a hundred and some episodes to watch. I think each one's a lot shorter, if I remember <laughs> correctly, in, in the episode count. So I, it's a very, very well done series. I mean, there's no doubt about it from the authenticity, from the time period. From the subject matter that's covered, it's a very, very good series. So, hmm. I, okay. uh, you know, I know it's not always your cup of tea, Chris, but if you become interested, it is worth maybe a few weeks of some binge watching to catch up on if you decide to do so. Okay. I, I was one over, and I'm not the biggest period uh, piece fan either. So, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, the last news item I have um, we are two weeks away from. Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh man! See, and that's the, <laughs> that's the reaction I knew I was going to get. But let me You're let me right. make a strong case here for this. 
Okay. Uh, we have Christopher McQuarrie, who is the director of this movie, who also directed the last one, which was Rogue Nation. That was the fourth Mission Impossible movie. Okay. The Mission Impossible series we started... We did review that on the show, didn't we? I'm pretty sure we did. Okay. The Mission Impossible series started back with the Brian De Palma film back in the late 90s, I believe. And for a while, they had a kind of a history of every installment was going to be a new director. The second one was John Woo. John Woo was the second. J.J. Abrams was the third, third, which is still my favorite. Fourth one was Brad Bird. That was the Incredibles 2 director that we talked about from last week. Right. Uh, and was then that, we had Christopher McQuarrie. So Ghost Protocol was Brad Bird's. Ghost Protocol was Brad Bird. Uh, Rogue Nation is Christopher McQuarrie. Then we have Fallout, who is also McQuarrie. So McQuarrie is the first one to come back for two films. He's back a to back. for punishment. Hello. <laughs> uh, the reviews so far of early screenings are extremely positive. I have heard that. Yep. And, you know, they've been positive for the last two films, quite honestly. J.J. Abrams, one I liked a lot, was mostly uh, liked by critics and all. I like the fourth the and fifth one have been really highly regarded. Now, I thought the fourth one, I didn't think the fourth one was as good as everybody else was claiming. I fell asleep. Yeah, I know. You remember, you and I were both a little more lukewarm on it. I uh, was watching it at home. Then. Yeah. I didn't watch it in the theater. So. I think they're good films. I think they're very, very well done films. But I do feel like the quality level may be cranking up each installment over the last few films. Hmm. So I'm very, very curious to see what's going on with this film. And uh, we will be, of course, reviewing it when it comes out. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Variety put out an article saying, Why do Oscar voters keep sleeping on the Mission Impossible franchise? Uh, because it's an action movie? But, okay, yes, but why? Were they I mean, what, best why? picture of the year? Come on now. I think, I think it's just there's a little bit more of a case to be made. And I think if Mission Impossible Fallout is good and is, you know, kind of a, keeps bumping up the franchise and it is focused on some really interesting action scenes and cinematography and, and so on. Yeah. You got to ask the question. I kind of ask the same question we do about uh, motion capture acting and why that isn't a category or eligible for awards as much. I kind of feel the same way about action scenes. Now, uh, Mad Max Fury, Fury Road, I think did kind of break the mold a little bit. It finally gave us a best picture nomination. Right. For what was generally speaking an action film, well, it was it was nominating a lot of things yeah. like you know. So I do think that's thing. kind of that may have opened up a little bit of doors for us. Uh, would it be kind of interesting to see a Mission Impossible movie get, I don't know, best cinematography, get best direction? You know, maybe it wouldn't do a best picture because for best picture, I think you've got to have all the elements working together. It's got to be story. It's got to be acting. It's got to be all that. Right. But if a film is a really kinetic action thrill ride and it's well done and well paced, that to me is a good directing uh, nomination. Could be a good editing. Could be good cinematography. Um, I personally would love to see really well done action movies get more acclaim. And... Mad Max Fury Road was a little bit of a, a, a glimmer of hope that maybe we're going to start to see that happen. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I'm just saying I'm not saying that Mission Impossible Fallout is going to sweep the Oscars next year. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of buzz already with the people who have seen it and said, yeah, you know, this thing ought to really be considered for a little more acclaim than the typical action movie. So that being said, we have now contributed to the overhype of the film before it's even come out. But uh, I do think it's an interesting question. I would love to see the Oscars get to a point where it doesn't matter what genre or type of film it is. 
let's recognize the best movies, period. Mm. Whether they're animated, right. whether they're motion capture driven, whether they're superhero movies, whether they're action movies, it just seems to be the best movies that were made that year. So we're maybe getting closer. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm interested. So see. obviously we will be talking about that film. Yes, I understand that now. Um, I, and I, because of the hype that I'd seen online, I was like, okay, well, you know, this, I haven't heard this much hype about a Mission Impossible movie in a while, probably since the J.J. Abrams one. So I'm interested to see how it's supposed to be that much better because I, I could, I could well, live the rest of my life and never see another Mission Impossible movie and also probably never see another James Bond movie. Oh, see, that's um, where you and I differ because I love these never see another uh, Jason Bourne movie. Like all I never movies. saw any of the Jason Bourne movies. Really? Nope. Some of them I thought were pretty good, you know, the first one or two. But I think I, I saw one with a, at a family get-together and it was on in the background. I watched some of it, but I, I never got around hmm. to watching any of the Jason Bourne movies. I love the James Bond movies. I re actually, the James Bond and the Mission Impossible franchise have kind of started to swap for me a little bit. Hmm. As much as I love Skyfall, other yeah, than Skyfall, Skyfall other than Skyfall, the other movies I like, but I think the Mission Impossible franchise has actually gotten better while the James Bond franchise is kind of, you know, uh, what was the last one? Spectra yeah, yeah. didn't really do a whole lot for me. So hmm. um, Interesting. I'm anxious to see. I, I'm personally excited. I, I love the Mission Impossible movies. I have a good time with them. I was not as high as the last two that a lot of the critics were, but I still think the franchise has got a lot of legs and it's just to see what they do with it. So and those legs are always running, always running. Tom Mr. Cruise. Cruise, always running. <laughs> I will say if you're interested at all in, uh, the production of high end action scenes, there is a featurette that was put out about mission impossible fallout where, they're filming a halo jump coming out of a low altitude helicopter. And it's a very like kind of you know, fast jump that that's meant to come into enemy territory. And it's a very specific type of jump. And Tom Cruise does it just because he does all of his own stunts. I mean, stunts. they don't have PR if he doesn't. Like, you know, well, but I'm just saying, out of the airplane I'm still saying it's amazing it's like, to watch because not only, I mean, I'm just going to tell you that the shot that blew me away is you follow him as he jumps out of the back of the, hel the helicopter. The cinematographer jumps out before him, obviously, because he's got the big camera rig. Mm -hmm. And then they show you a shot of what it looks like from another angle. And it's crazy how this guy is holding this huge camera rig, mm -hmm. jumping, and he's following Tom Cruise, free falling out of a helicopter down. See, I can admire That's the production amazing. of it, but I think the movie as a whole is going to leave me bored. But we'll see. Well, don't go in with a high expectation. Okay, we know our problem is we go in with high expectations sure. and you get shot down. Go in assuming you're going to be bored. Go in assuming <laughs> it's going to be just another cookie cutter action movie okay. and see how you feel afterwards. And we'll talk after that's done. Well, I will say I didn't care much for the one that came before this either. Um, what was the name of it? Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. Um, but was her name Rebecca Ferguson? Rebecca Ferguson. She was a standout. And I did she's like her. in and this she one. She is again, in this yeah. one. Yeah, so. she is. Okay. We'll see. Very curious. All right. Okay. So that's the news items I had to share. Like I said, all three of them are franchise related. Sure. Which again, that just seems to be the nature of the beast for is. production notes now. Um, but uh, some interesting projects. I'm anxious to see all three of them at this point and kind of find out where they're going to go. 
So, Chris, we always cap off the show after we do news with a recommendation that we want to share, something we caught up with recently or recalled recently that we want to share with our audience. For any of those people who are always asking us, tell me a good movie I should see. What's something I should check out? We are giving you a, a movie recommendation just about every episode we record, and we've recorded quite a few of them. So there's a whole laundry list of films we can recommend. Uh, if in anything, it becomes a little more of a struggle to find one to recommend uh, for new episodes. But luckily, Chris and I like watching movies, so we do end, uh, tend to end up coming up with one. So, Chris, let me toss it over to you. What do you have to recommend for us this episode? So I am going to recommend a period piece that follows what? a Soviet dictator's last days and depicts the chaos of the regime after his death. The movie oh. is from 2017, but I think it was basically released this year in the U.S., uh, it's the death of Stalin. Yes. He's saying, wait, Chris, period piece, doesn't work. Well, it's also a comedy. It's a dark comedy, obviously, because you're talking about the death of Stalin. Um, but it's, I really enjoyed it. Learned what I assume is some facts about the history. <laughs> but granted, because it's a comedy, there probably are liberties taken. But um, it was entertaining, kept me entertained. And the cast is pretty amazing. Uh, you have Steve Buscemi, Michael Palin, Jeffrey Tambor, wow. Patty Considine, and then somebody who's fallen off the face of the earth for me, but was really interesting in that Tom Cruise movie that was science fiction that I can't even remember the name of, but Olga Kurlenko. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't, I like, I remember liking her in that, and then I think I've kind of forgotten about her. Well, she's in this. She was in, was she in Oblivion? Oblivion, that's the name mm -hmm. of the Tom Cruise. Yeah. Yep, she was in that. So um, it's the cast is great, and I would like to see immediately see another movie with Jeffrey Tambor, Steve Buscemi, and Michael Palin because the three of those guys together just were they were pretty good together. Were awesome, yeah. So um, Death of Stalin, I recommend. It is dark because of you know subject matter that it's dealing with. The directors, the first thing I think I've ever seen by him, uh, Armando Iannucci, who mm -hmm. apparently is known for being a producer, I think, on things like Veep, which is a show that I've never seen, but I've heard people really like it. And I think he had something to do with a movie In the Loop that came out. Oh, yeah, for, right. So anyways, uh, I recommend The Death of Stalin. It's on, I think, Amazon Prime. And I think it's on DVD by now, too. So Now, we actually had a lot of people in our film society ask about it or make comments saying they've heard some good things about it. So that's really uh, – that's good. That's definitely one of my lists I need to check out uh, as well. So, Chris, I, in my recommendation, uh, strove to find a film that I thought was the perfect blend – of our two reviews. and the Wasp. And, oh, really? Yeah. Was no, seriously. You were going to say it, right? It's <laughs> Ant-Man and the Wasp and RBG. RBG. Okay. And I got it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and this may stretch the idea of a film recommendation because I think this is actually a special that aired on BBC originally back in yeah. 2007. Hey. But it's an hour long and it is kind of something you can watch now and I'll tell you even at the end how easy it is to see it. Okay. Um, going to the comic book side for a second. Yes. So I, comic book reader, I collected them, have a huge collection from when I was a kid, love the art form, love the serialized storytelling, and I was always a big fan of Spider-Man. So Spider-Man back in 1963 was introduced as a character uh, created by Stan Lee. and I've heard of him. Yes, you've heard of Stan Lee, but have you heard of Steve Ditko? Only because he has recently passed away. He did. Steve Ditko was the artist of the first, like, 30-some issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, which was the introduction of the character. He basically created the look, the costume, the look of all the characters, and, to some degree, kind of helped plot and write a lot of the stories, because it got to be, after a while, 
Stanley, rumor has it, was basically just turning in little plot ideas <laughs> and then letting the artist kind of just yeah. spell it out and draw it out into a story. So the thing with Steve Ditko, though, very interesting gentleman, is he uh, fairly recluse, very independent, uh, very, uh, I think, uh, uh, had a very unique uh, mindset towards society. I think he was a Ayn Rand follower, very intense. Didn't always work well with others as well. Mm -hmm. Not a nice guy, but just not a collaborator. Not right. a, you know, he was a pretty much here, lone give me, wolf. Lone wolf. Give okay. me what I need to do and I'm going to go do it. This is the kind of guy that there are three photographs of him. Wow. <laughs> three photographs. And so even, is the entire documentary just those three photographs very slowly dissolved? Pretty much. <laughs> wow. So no video footage of him, of course. Three okay. photographs, one hand-drawn illustration of him, and then one audio recording they played a clip of in the film. Ah. But the film, and let me back up. So there is a documentary called In Search of Steve Ditko from okay. 2007. It is hosted by Jonathan Ross. He is the kind of common, the narrator of the film. He's on film himself. Uh, production quality wise, it's not the best in the world for a couple of reasons. One is basically more like a 60 minutes type uh, story than it is a film. Okay. Um, and because of what I just mentioned before, only having three photographs of Steve Ditko, <laughs> you don't have a lot of archival stuff to work with. Gotcha. So you get a lot of just shots of the different covers of comics he drew and his interior work. And then you see those same three photographs of Seattle. So production quality is not the best in the world. Gotcha. But let me tell you a couple things that made this really interesting. A, okay. as you mentioned, Steve Ditko did pass away just a couple weeks, a few weeks ago. Sure. He was 90, uh, passed away by himself. It was a couple of days before anybody found out that he had died because oh, wow. he was just so independent and, and uh, by himself at the time. Um, but he's so well revered by so many comic creators and artists and fans that it became a, it was kind of a mourning situation when he passed away, even though, I mean, he was well up in his age and 90 years old, had lived a full life, but um, it, it's really kind of caused a lot of people to go back and kind of check out this documentary and go back and see if some of his past work. So here's the things, Chris, I'm going to tell you why I think you should watch this as okay. well, even and if you have no interest. Okay. So it's BBC, but how am I going to get to watch it? Oh, it's easy. Oh, have you ever heard of YouTube? I have. Okay. The entire thing's free on YouTube. Hey, you I just, like free too. Just search for In Search of uh, Steve Ditko, and you got a 60-minute documentary ready to watch on demand. Okay. Uh, so here's the, here's the fun thing about this, this film. It's interesting. Okay. It has a lot of great stories from other creators and people who have met him or interacted with him. But there's two pieces of this film in particular I think are kind of historical in a way. One, you do have an interview with Steve uh, Stan Lee. Ah, and in that, of course, that interview, the question comes up posed to Stan Lee whether he considers Steve Ditko a co-creator of the Spider-Man character or not. And the answers are very interesting and actually a little controversial, something that people actually kind of refer to back now to say how there's a, a broken relationship between these two gentlemen. And you see kind of where it comes from when you hear this interview. It's not the most flattering interview for Steve for Stanley, um, but I think the fact that they've got this in this documentary and obviously is pretty crazy. Steve Ditko is not interviewed oh. for this documentary. Well, that's the other piece. Okay. The, that's the other interesting piece. The film is called In Search of Steve Ditko. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Ross is a huge fan. He's the presenter, the narrator, 
And his whole thing is that at the end of the film, he's like, I, I want to meet him. I want to find him. I want to talk to him. Hmm. And I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end of the film, okay. but it does close with something. And his cohort in that journey at the end of the film is a Mr. Neil Gaiman. So oh, Neil wow. Gaiman is actually interviewed. You know how he's like one of my favorite people. I know it is. So Neil Gaiman actually is with Jonathan Ross at the end of the film when they get to the end climax of the film. Some could say the end of the film is a little uh, uh, not fulfilling. Some could say it's exactly what the film needed to be, uh, but it's still interesting no matter what. And so you know I had a really good like? time. It sounds like um, it's a comic book faces places. <laughs> a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, you know, huh. so it's just, uh, I, I thought it was a really interesting watch, especially if someone doesn't know Steve Ditko, but just knows a little bit about some of his work. Right. It's a really fascinating hour. And, mm -hmm. uh, and again, you got to elevate it on your, your wish list only because it's absolutely free on YouTube. That sounds good. So there's no subscription you got to have. There's nothing you got to pay for. Just pull up YouTube, search for this film and sit back and watch it. So, yeah, well, actually, probably we usually do try to link the recommendations that we give. So that can just link straight to free YouTube. Awesome. Absolutely. So I will say whether you're a comic book fan or not, whether you're a fan of just really interesting art, uh, pop culture art, or you just want to see kind of an interesting documentary about a very interesting person, um, I think it's worth your checking out. So, cool. yeah. So that are, is our show for today. So we had two good recommendations, The Death of Stalin and In Search of Steve Ditko, both available online that you can find now. Uh, then we did our reviews of Ant-Man and the Wasp and RBG. And then we talked a little bit about some franchise movies, including the Joker film with Joaquin Phoenix, a Downton Abbey film being made based on the TV show, and why I think Mission Impossible should be considered for Oscar consideration at some point in its run. So with that, we covered a lot of ground. We'll obviously have more to talk about in our next episode. But Chris, in the meantime, if uh, someone wanted to reach out and talk to us or give us any feedback on anything they've heard, how would we ask them to do so? You can send us an email at info at themesh.tv and just mention for Candle Films in the subject line. And tell us what you liked or didn't like about the show, a movie that you know is coming out that you want to be sure that we recommend or watch, rather. Um, and that's one of the ways. Also, you know, if you would like to leave us a review on iTunes, uh, that would be great because it helps uh, the more people review our show, the more people may end up getting recommended the show to them by iTunes. So it helps us get more listeners. Also, Alan referenced the fact that uh, we try to come up with recommendations Um one place I log all of those recommendations is on a service called Letterboxd, which we've mentioned before on the show. Alan and I both have accounts on there. We try to keep a running diary of the movies that we watch. And I have a list on there of all the recommendations that I've given since we started the show, which, yes, there are quite a few. Yeah, it's a long <laughs> so. list. But I will tell you, if you, you know, it's a good list to go to to say, all right, I'm, I'm in the mood for something different. I need a recommendation of something to watch. You got a nice long list of nice variety of films to choose from. Absolutely. I have a list on my letterbox account, but I realize I've been slack and have not updated it in a really long time. So I have my early recommendations from like the first <laughs> half of our podcast shows, but not really much since then. I need to get more active on that. Chris, um, what, are, what are you going to be doing on September 28th, 29th and 30th this year? You got anything going on? Yes. I'm going on vacation. No, um, <laughs> you are. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> that didn't go the way I expected it to. Um, no, uh, I am going to be with Alan. We are going to be at the Salt Block in Hickory, North Carolina, holding the fourth annual Foot Candle Film Festival, 
where we'll be screening around 38 films. Um, should be a fun weekend. Filmmakers from all over the state of North Carolina, all over the country of the United States, and actually, hopefully, we're going to get some from all over the world. The world of come. Earth. The world of Earth, yes. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with Mars, let me right. clarify. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, we'll have filmmakers coming in to hopefully talk about some of their films and Q&As afterwards, and it's going to be a good time. So there'll be more information coming up, such as a schedule, what films will be showing, and that'll be available at footcandlefilmfestival.com is where you'll be able to find out more information about the film festival. But it is, as I mentioned, September 28th through the 30th. That's right. So it uh, should be a really great weekend. We're looking forward to it. Uh, tickets will be going on sale to the general public in the early part of August. So be on the lookout for that. And then we hope to see you in Western North Carolina joining us the last weekend of September for the festival. All right, Chris. Well, that's our show for today. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks so much to everybody for listening. We look forward to talking to you next time. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.